My name is Evan. Good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to see you, to be here with you. If you're new, uh, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church alongside a fantastic team. They're over there, Drew and the rest. And t- like you said, today we finished 1 Corinthians. We've been in this book for over a year, and we're in- done with the final chapter today, chapter 16. So if you can open to 1 Corinthians 16. As you do that, first I want to give a really short three-month vision. I want to paint the next three months for you. So picture uh, May, June, July in your minds. Here's what's coming. We've been, as leaders, we've been praying and planning for this stuff since fall. We're so pumped (laughs) to let you in on it. Next week, like Drew said, is Baptism Sunday. And it's also the start of a two-month series called Teach Us to Pray. So May and June, nine weeks in the Psalms. Um, Of all the Old Testament books, which was Jesus's Bible, right? The one book Jesus quoted from the most, Book of Psalms. Psalms was basically the prayer book of Jesus, our Savior. So if we want to pray like Jesus and be shaped like Jesus, we will learn to pray these Psalms in every emotion and every season of life, right? So we're going to talk about emotional health and how science and prayer and spirituality fit together and how doubt and deconstruction is really the ideal environment for authentic prayer and spiritual maturity to grow because we see a ton of deconstruction in the Psalms. This will be so good for us, you guys, so good. That's May and June. And then July, here's July. For a whole month as a church, our whole church will be doing what we're calling our Sabbath month, okay? Our plan is to do this every year, just like Sabbath day, intentional day of worship and rest on the seventh day of the week. Sabbath month will be an intentional month of rest and delight in God for our whole church, seventh month of every year. What does this mean? It means July is bare bones church rhythm. Like everything gets simplified, zero momentum or whatever, like no no pressure, no expectations for communities, no curriculum, no expectations for prayer, nothing extra, just the Sunday morning gathering each week. This is an intentional statement we're making as a church. So while the world around us is trying to like lean in and crush it and get back into a post-pandemic momentum and get their career going and kickstart whatever they were doing before COVID, the whole world's trying to ramp up, right? Uh, We are taking an intentional Sabbath month to rest instead of ramp and to delight in God and each other. So instead of having official like plans to build momentum, we highly encourage communities to do something fun, like (laughs) to do something, do fun stuff together, just relationship and delight in God. Maybe do like a mini one day vacation somewhere together or, or a hike, mission trails or something. A bunch of staff will be taking several weeks off in July for extended vacations. I know a bunch of you guys do that too. And by the way, for July Sundays, for those Sundays, I've invited some of the best teachers I know to come and lead us through what it looks like to delight and rest in God in a time of frantic, just mayhem that our world is going through. It's going to be beautiful. I I think, honestly, July is going to be a month of breakthrough in the form of spiritual recovery for a lot of us. So... So that's it. The next three months. We have plans for fall. We'll save that till later. So you've opened your Bible to 1 Corinthians 16. How how does all that, you guys get see the next three months in your head? Okay, great. 
So 1 Corinthians 16, whole chapter today. Paul's final words. You ever tried to write a long letter and then at the end, you wanna just like cram in all your main ideas and do it really emotionally? That's what Paul does here. Um, he, he cuts right to the heart of what it means to be a community shaped by Jesus, like that lets themselves be molded. In, and he goes into a couple different areas. It seems random and shotgun blast. So if this sermon seems like three sermons in one, blame Paul, because this is how he rolls out his last chapter. He, he talks about how we think about our money and how we think about the will of God for our lives. Two big topics, right? And then he throws in another one, how, how we should submit to church leaders and what that even means. He crams it all into these final, this final closing. And so here it goes, chapter 16, verse one. You ready? Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Okay, money in church. Let's go, Paul. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. And what is that? Verse two, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Okay. First, actually final, final major issue. This is a letter of issues. The Corinthians had lots of them. And he addresses them. And the final major issue Paul addresses in this letter is this collection of money that Paul's working on. Apparently, the the church in Jerusalem was going through a tough time, needed support. And so Paul commands all the other churches to save up money for the church. And I told you, Paul's going to get super practical today. So the way Paul sees it, you guys... Giving to your local church, each person in each church, he says. According to Paul, giving to your local church is not really an, it's not optional for followers of Jesus. This is the last point Paul makes. He's getting right into like our our, our privacy right now. So the question then becomes, okay, Paul, how often do we give? How often are we supposed to give? Verse one, he says weekly. Okay, Paul, why do we give to the church? And well, since the last five chapters have been all about what to do when we gather, starting with communion and men and women leading together and prophecy and tongues and all these things, he's talking about the gathering. Since all of this is about what to do when we gather as a church, ultimately, honestly, you guys, Paul probably expects this giving of money to be a part of regular worship for all followers of Jesus. Weekly, part of our worship expression. In fact, this is one of three verses in the New Testament that specifically references Sunday as the day of worship for the church. I don't know if you knew that. The the first day of the week, he says specifically in this passage. It's the same day Jesus' body rose out of the ground. That's why the church gathered on that day. That's why we still gather on that day. In honor of our king, all Christians everywhere are commanded. Our risen king has come out of the ground, so we will set aside our earthly wealth for our heavenly king. That's how it's happened from the beginning. So, okay, Paul, got it. All Christians commanded to worship through giving. So here's the million-dollar question, no pun intended. How much? How much do we give? 
What are we supposed to, how much are we supposed to give, right? And this is where Paul's not very clear. He doesn't give a fixed percent. Like here's X percentage you should be given. And this is actually brilliant of him. Why is this brilliant? Because if he did give us a fixed percent, then some of us might feel off the hook, right? Like, oh, tick. I got the percentage. Like, forget sacrificial generosity or worshiping God through budgeting. Forget regularly seeking the Spirit for how far I can go in my generosity for the kingdom. Just tick it off. Just tick off the fixed percent. Done. Paul doesn't let us do that. Paul knows that would create a lazy generosity, which isn't really generous at all, right? That's why he's brilliant here. So, okay, Paul, since you're going to be tricky, um, not really, he's brilliant. How, how, how much should we be giving, really? Give us some wisdom on this, Paul. And here's his answer right there in verses one through four, verse two specifically. He says, give, NIV says, in keeping with your income. More literally, give of your prospering or of whatever you surplus. This is the command. Give of whatever you prosper. So, if, if, we're, if we're honest and we grew up in Western American church or whatever, most of us think 10% is like the magic number. We're all supposed to be giving to our local church. It turns out the New Testament never teaches that once. It doesn't teach the tithe, the New Testament. Um, it's, don't get me wrong. It's definitely wisdom. It's a good starting place to pray from, 10%. But that's not New Testament teaching. In fact, the New Testament celebrates not a fixed percentage, but the new, it actually celebrates giving more than we think we can afford. That's what's constantly celebrated in the New Testament, sacrificially for the sake of the community, especially the poor. That's the pattern we see in the New, and it comes straight from Jesus. Remember that famous scene in Mark 12, where Jesus, he's sitting in the temple with his disciples, and he's watching all the rich folks put in their money, and this widow, poor widow, it says, she gives two small copper coins and Jesus celebrates, calls his disciples over. They're like, what? This is not anything special. He's like, no, it is. Truly, this poor widow has given more than the rest. And they're like, well, obviously it's not about a percentage now or even an amount. <laughs> He's like, no, no, they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. That's what Jesus celebrates. You guys, this celebration comes straight from the guy we worship as God. When it comes to giving to God's own family, Jesus celebrates those who give more than they think they can afford. This is the pattern all through the New Testament. And here in Paul's final words to Corinth, he's like, okay, this whole letter is about being shaped like Jesus in our minds and our bodies and our souls, spirits, all the way to our sexuality and the way we relate to our families and everything. So if we're really going to be Jesus-shaped, Here's what needs to happen. As part of your regular Sunday worship, each of you set aside a sum of money according to your prosperity in keeping with your income. From, and he says, save it up for me so that when I come, I don't have to come knocking as a collector, he says, <laughs> which is amazing. So he's getting in our business now. And uh, as if he hasn't already, this whole letter has been intense. And, and it's consistent. On this teaching, he says it in Romans chapter 15 and Philippians and 2 Corinthians and other places. The New Testament expects Jesus followers, each of us, 
to be giving generously in a way that feels sacrificial, not so we trade places with the poor, but so that we give our surplus for the poor and the needs of the church. Uh, And you know what this means? How do you give of your surplus if you don't know what you actually have to surplus? This means we have to be ruthlessly honest about how much is surplus, right? I mean, let's be like real. A fixed percent would not really require the same amount of generosity for a well-off person as for a person who's more poorly off. Would you agree? I mean, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, he wrote this book called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. And his point in the book is that the, the New Testament consistently teaches this, this principle, not everyone giving 10%, but everyone giving sacrificially, which means a higher percentage for the well-off and a lower percentage than expected for the struggling. This is the New Testament ethic. And because the reality is for some of us here, I mean, city like San Diego, you never know. It's, it's such an interesting place when it comes to wealth. But for some of you who have more money, giving 10% might not be a sacrifice. Jesus and Paul would invite you to ask the Spirit, what would sacrificial generosity look like for you in this season? Right? And, and for others of you struggling financially, maybe giving 10% would break you. <laughs> I totally get that. Paul's like, don't worry. Give less, serve more. There are many ways to like give sacrificially, right? Like what would that look for you right now? You're kind of drowning in debt or whatever. and It's just hard right now or whatever is going on. What would generosity sacrificially look like for you right now? Ask the spirit. Maybe it's committing to serve Park Hill kids with your time. Come on, like you guys, <laughs> like you can do it. I was talking to Sandy on a walk uh, yesterday about this very idea and she was saying it, Sandy was saying it's beautiful, but also kind of, kind of sad when you see like a mom of three kids also volunteering with kids <laughs> on Sunday. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's amazing. More power to them. It's beautiful. But Sandy was like, I bet that mom of three kids would love a 10 minute conversation with someone other than kids right now. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so, so the point, you guys, sacrificial generosity is the, is the command not a percent. That's the point for followers of Jesus. It's that practical. It's that practical. And it's part of our family worship weekly. And it's actually so freeing when you realize that that's the command and we're all in it together. And I realize talking about money, we don't do very many sermons on money. I went through the files on Park Hill sermons and there's like two we've given in our whole like 200 sermon catalog or whatever that we've done since planting in 2017. So this is the third. And, um, and I realize when you talk about something as personal as money in our culture, especially in a city like San Diego, where huge wealth and huge poverty exist side by side, like multi-million dollar homes surrounded with houseless people, um, not to mention our closest urban neighbor, Tijuana, and the huge opportunity for bi-national partnership there, we ask questions. When you hear about money in church, we have questions. We're like, why? And why there? And why? why the, what does it actually do? Where is it going? All of that. Great questions. We should always be asking. And the elders are always willing to talk about those. Open book, okay? So here's what needs to be said here, though. 
Here's what needs to be said. I think this is really important. And this might seem obvious at first to you, but trust me, it's not obvious. And it's this. A generous church is first and foremost generous to people in the church. I'll say it again. A generous church is first and foremost generous to people in the church. At first you're like, yeah, totally. No, not totally. Not of course. Like this, in our nonprofit culture, don't get me wrong, I love nonprofits, but look at this verse from Galatians 6. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Um, especially to the family of believers. It's like, but I feel torn between giving to my church and giving to this great cause where I can see stuff happen or whatever, especially to the family of believers <laughs> is the command. So, so here's what I'm speaking to here. I don't know if this is like an elephant in the room, but it's definitely a tension that I feel all the time. And it's this question, should I give to my church or should I give to my nonprofit of choice? We go there here. We talk about this stuff. So, uh, and again, I want to say, I love nonprofits. Like my wife and I personally give every month for over a decade to a nonprofit doing justice globally. I'm a huge fan. At the same time, I want to speak very openly right now. Part of the thing we struggle with is that we want immediate, significant return on investment. We want to see it. I want to see my impact, <laughs> right? I want photos of weeping children in poverty. I want to know that I've changed a whole village. I want to know the entire region has been shifted by this one act of generosity. I want that. And honestly, that's great. That should all happen. It's wonderful and totally part of our generosity as God's kids in the world. Totally. But Listen, the beautiful countercultural ministry of the global church should not come at the expense of the local church. This is what Paul is saying here. This is a kind of a blunt way of saying it that you can do with what you will, but I've heard it said this way, and I think there's truth to it, which is what makes it uncomfortable. But like, while it's amazing to give to nonprofits internationally, the fact is, every dollar you send to outside nonprofits is a dollar you have removed from the kingdom mission in the city God has called you to. Okay, that's just speaking very straightforwardly. In the sight of God, it's just as beautiful, you guys, just as beautiful. None of this is bad. It's just as beautiful when a small chunk of the church's central benevolence budget is released to cover car expenses for a single mom or young family with a new baby in one of our Park Hill communities during COVID or who have no other way to commute to work, or to help a widow in the church pay her rent and groceries during lockdown after losing her second job or having her re resume turned away for the eighth time. All of this happened for us during COVID because of the generosity of this church. We're so thrilled to be able to do even more than that right here in your local space of kingdom existence. Now, I know that's not like spectacular. It doesn't make as compelling of like a video. Um, but there's something beautiful about telling the story of God's faithfulness in your community. The church met the needs of my community. This is the church as the model of God's family to the world. I just want to give you a vision for this, you guys. 
Let's follow Paul's call and give first to the needs of the people of God and then generously bless others as well out of that culture into the rest of the world. And I, okay, so I'm, are you doing, we're doing okay? <laughs> okay, good. So we're going to circle back to that at the end. We're going to quickly read through the rest of chapter 16, Paul's final greetings. At first, again, they feel kind of shotgun blast, popcorn, random. But when you take a closer look, they are practical and very relational. So here's the deal. Big picture, Jesus wants to get his hands on our agendas. He wants to get his hands on our souls and shape us, shape our priorities so, to become a community of generosity. So now verse five, here we go. Paul shifts from money to his travel plans. All right, verse five. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make just a passing visit. Paul's like, I don't just want to see you quickly. I want to see you for a long time. I want to be with you guys so bad, if the Lord permits. And then verse 8, but I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Okay, there's a huge thing going on here. We heard about money being shaped in our finances, but now Paul's showing us how to be shaped in how we make decisions in general. Like, you know, the whole big question, what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Who does he want me to be with? What job does he want me to have? I have all these open doors. What if I miss God's will? Like that whole thing we worry about? Paul's, Paul deals with that, and he shows us a model. Why doesn't Paul go to Corinth? He wants to. Here's his reason. I have an open door over here. <laughs> That's his reason. I have an open door right here, and it looks good. It looks effective. This is amazing. Just a quick comment, you guys. We're going to talk about the will of God in our Psalm series, but this is so important because we misunderstand the will of God so often. We ask, like, what is God's will? And, like, what if she or he is not the one? Or I could do so many. I don't know. I'm praying so hard, and I just don't hear from God or whatever. Paul has this process. He's like, I want to come, but right now there's a cool thing here, so I'm doing it. That's his discernment process, you guys. <laughs> That's it. So that, that God's will, it's that practice. Maybe you're like, wait, 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 but isn't God's will like a burning bush? Do I have to wait for like a bush to flare up as I'm hiking and then listen to it and then obey it like crazy? I have to wait maybe 40 years? And yeah, if you're Moses, the rest of us don't get burning bushes typically. It seems the rest of us get what Paul just calls an open door for effective work. That's what he calls it. Okay, but what if I walk through that door and it seems great at the time, but I miss God's will? Listen, we got category error happening there. God's will has almost nothing to do with which door you walk through and everything to do with what kind of person you are becoming. Okay? God's will has almost nothing to do with which door you walk through and everything to do with what kind of person you are becoming. This is God's will. Paul says it this way, 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in only open door circumstances? No, <laughs> he says give thanks in all circumstances. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thanks in all. Whichever open door, whichever person you're with, whichever job you take. God's will is gratitude wherever you're planted. Here's Paul in Romans 12 too. Don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, perfect will. There it is. How do you find God's will for your life? According to Romans 12 too. How do you do it? You change your mind. You change your mindset. You change your worldview. Make sure it's Jesus' worldview. In other words, you become like Jesus, whatever you're doing. Period. That's God's will for your life. But, but, but what if I, like, miss the thing that is... No, like, wrong question, Paul says. Never the right question. The right question is whatever and wherever you are, are you becoming like Jesus? That's God's will for your life. And that should set you free. The psalmist said the same thing. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Are you becoming like Jesus? Then trust your desires are shaped by his. God's will. Paul's living it. He's like, I want to come to Corinth. I love you guys. I really want to come, but I want to be here. It seems like two great options. He's like, I'm going to go through the door that seems like it'll work. (laughs) It's so simple. I love that. Just set you free. This is how Paul ends his letter, very practically, you guys, very relationally. And then he finishes by talking about leaders. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see to it he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just like I am. No one then should treat him with contempt, send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. This is just relational stuff. This is beautiful. Verse 12, Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. You guys, Paul's very relational, you guys. He's he's saying, hey, all your leaders, the people that serve you, the people that love you, and the people that work day and night to make sure your discipleship is happening, respect them. Be hospitable to them. Roll out the red carpet whenever you can. In verse 13, Paul sums up all of 1 Corinthians. He says... Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. That is 1 Corinthians. Be on your guard against division. If anyone's gossiping or dividing, fight that with goodness. Stand firm in the faith, Jesus' life, death, teaching, and resurrection. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Your personal freedoms take second place to the concerns of others all the time. That's called love. This is 1 Corinthians. And then he celebrates leaders in verse 15. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. So one of the last commands from Paul is to submit to the leaders who serve you. Not just any leaders, godly leaders who have proven trustworthy. He's not calling you to trust abusive leaders. He's calling you to trust godly leaders who have a track record of faithfulness. And so as a leader here, my wife and I co-lead this church together alongside the team, as I say every week, which is true. I want to point out several other leaders, servants here, who are not paid 
and they're worthy of our humble submission and our listening ear and our support and our regular communication. You guys, can we give it up for our community leaders right now? My goodness, you got Park Hill Church has always been built around community. We call it the nerve center of the church. To be part of Park Hill means committed to a community group that meets in a home, shares a meal around the table. And we're moving back into homes. The restrictions are lifting. They say by June 15th, all indoor restrictions will be gone and everywhere, whatever. Uh, this means, you guys, we're moving back into embodied presence. So, so this means being submitted to a community leader. That's what it means. Our pastor of community formation, Aaliyah, is always meeting with potential leaders and hearing their stories and praying with the elders. Who does God want to be appointed to lead and really be trusted to open their home to lead Park Hill? It's, it's incredible what God has done in so short a time, just three years. We're adding more leaders in the, ne the next month or so. And these community leaders are then submitted to the elders. That's how it works. They serve the church freely, unpaid, week in, week out, all, all the things that they do. And last year, you guys, was so hard for them. They didn't, uh, they didn't say this or tell me to say this. I just, I know because it was hard for me. And just to add volunteer leadership on that level of authority and pastoral presence, last year, no community leaders signed up to like shift to Zoom, you guys, and then navigate an awkward shift back or whatever uh, in, in such a volatile political climate. And yet, despite all the difficulty, before COVID happened, we were at about 290 people in communities and we added leaders over COVID and added people committed. And now we're around 420 in communities led by volunteer servant leaders. So let me channel Paul. Hey, Park Hill, your leaders have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord people. So I beg you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, submit to them. Just like they're submitted to the elders. Starting in May, show up for community. And if you can't make it, Communicate. <laughs> let them know what's going on in your life. Call, let them know. Respect their hospitality and their authority in your life. This is Paul's final words. <laughs> I told you it'd be relational and practical, and it's even awkward. But he's getting, he's showing, the whole point, how can we let Jesus get his hands on us and shape us in our finances and how we do God's will and how we so how we act around leaders and how we live alongside leaders in our church and become leaders. And then you can read verses 17 through 21 on your own. It's some more personal touches from Paul. He talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss, which we don't literally do in our culture. We will hug or something similar. And then verse 22 through 24, last lines, you guys, this is it. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come Lord. In other words, he sees not loving Jesus is the ultimate sin. He's missing out on ultimate life. Come, Lord. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. There it is. First Corinthians, done. Good job, guys. You did it. So this whole letter has been one giant call to repent, to change how you think because the king is coming, right?
bring all our brokenness to be healed. Bring it all to the table. Bring it all to our king and let him shape us. Why do we want Jesus to shape us? Because one day we'll rise from the dead fully reshaped. But before then, he's slowly shaping us to be the advance sign of coming attractions in the resurrection now. And as people see Jesus through us, they are healed. They are forgiven. This is the invitation of 1 Corinthians. The kingdom's coming. So you guys, get ready. That's the invitation. Prepare the way. This is the message all through scripture. Prepare the way. The king is coming. Prepare the way. Rethink everything. Rethink whatever doesn't align with this king because he's good. There is no sense in resisting his authority because authority is synonymous with his goodness. And, and all through the scriptures, what does it mean to prepare for the king? What does it look like? It's always the same. There's always a pattern. John the Baptist, John, uh, Paul, Jesus, they all say the same stuff. What does it look like to get ready? Every time, they, it includes these things. Take stock of your stuff, your money, your possessions, and release your excess through sacrificial generosity. That's always in the get ready. Always. Wait a minute. God's bringing another kingdom that'll make the whole world new. And so why can't I just burn through it all <laughs> and just rise with Jesus? No, for some reason, what we do now matters all the way down to our possessions. So all the prophets and Jesus and Paul all say, get ready. What that looks like is if someone has two coats, you give away your extra for the one who has none. Literally what John the Baptist said when they said, how do we get ready? You got two coats, give away one. Do the same with your food for the kingdom's coming. That's their logic. Listen, this is about way more than your money. It's about margin, you guys. It's about priorities. It's about love. It's about attention. This is one of the areas of the Bible that are repeatedly hammered on. Our discipleship to Jesus and how we interact with our finances, you can't separate them. And so as we wrap up, I want to say this. It's kind of like, what, what do we do with all of this? This is so huge. One of the things I've learned growing up as a pastor's kid around church is this. If a church has a vision for guilting people rather than teaching people to give out of grace, you don't actually have a culture of generosity. You just have a culture of shame. Giving out of shame asks this question, how much do I have to give so I don't feel bad anymore? That's giving out of shame. We're not interested in that question at Park Hill. If that's the question you're driven by, you can keep it. Uh, giving under grace is very different. Giving under grace asks, because of what Jesus has done in my life, how can I steward what God has given me? It's giving out of grace. That's the kind of culture we're after here. Grace-driven grace -driven generosity that changes the world. So where do we go with this practically? Two things and then we'll eat at the table. Um, number one, Honestly, evaluate your heart. We can all do that. Honestly, evaluate your heart. Every time I hear someone preaching from the Bible and I feel, my, my, I feel myself wanting to like push back a little bit, I have to ask myself, what am I actually pushing back on right now? It could be that they're teaching heresy and I need to leave the church <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but it could also be 
that I have some faulty thinking in my mind or my heart that's part of a deeper issue that God wants to deal with in me. So number one is honestly evaluate your heart. Just keep that in mind. And number two, finally, put together a budget. I don't know if you saw that coming. (laughs) Actually, I told you, it'd be so practical. Paul commands, give according to your increase. Okay, very literally, how do you do that without knowing your increase? Which requires numbers, right? This command requires math in the Bible, literally. We can't honestly deal with our money without this thing called knowing our increase, a.k.a. budget. And, and because here's our problem. I don't know if, if you're like me, we pretty much see ourselves as more needy than we actually are. <laughs> right? If I don't have it hard in front of me, I'm really strapped. I'm more needy than I am. But how many $5, $6 lattes do I really need, you know? Um, so for real, sit down this spring and ask yourself, okay, Holy Spirit, roommates, parents, friends, spouse, whatever, what do we want 2021 to be? Like, how can we live as biblically as we can? What season are we in? What situation? What is God putting on our hearts? What can we do? Now, some of us right here on the promenade, some of us are doing fairly well financially. And you're like, I've had a Roth IRA since I was 10. We laugh. I literally talked to someone from our church who had a Roth IRA since they were 10. Um, and, and others of you are like 30,000 in credit card debt and another hundred thousand in student loans. Either way, whatever your situation, here's the phrase I want to just kind of leave you with. Bring God into your finances, wherever you are. We can all do that. We can all do that. Bring God into your finances, wherever you are, no matter where you are financially, we believe in a God of grace. God wants to step in and gently lead us into his vision of life to the fullest. Maybe you're here and you're like, budget, what is going on? This is church. (laughs) Like, I don't even know where to start. So overwhelming. Well, good news, you guys. Jesus touches all of life, so church should. Uh, Maybe you're, so good news for you. If that's you, good news. We're having our first ever God and money class. Monday night, May 17th, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's a three-hour class on how to bring God into your finances. I've heard from several folks in this church over the years. I, Evan, what do I, how do I start thinking about kingdom and my money? How do I budget? And even when I do budget, it just kind of never pans out. I'd love to be more generous, but I'm not sure I can. So I basically just kind of, you know, check my banking app when I feel nervous about the, what the balance might be or whatever. Uh, Listen, if that remotely describes you, this class is for you. (laughs) This God and money class is going to be beautiful. Let's all say yes to Paul's invitation to be shaped by Jesus all the way down. How we treat leaders, how we respond, how we lead, how we discern the will of God all the way into our wallets. The whole deal belongs to Jesus. So to bring us to the table, let's all stand together. 1 Corinthians done, check, behind us. We want to be shaped by it. We don't want to just check a box. We want it to actually check our hearts. So what we're going to do, if you notice today, we did not do the giving before the teaching. We did not read the giving prayer before the teaching like we normally do. We're going to end this teaching reciting this prayer together because we seriously want it to form us to be generous as our Father is generous. So if you have your phone, 
I'm going to challenge you to absolutely get your phone out and go to parkhillsd.church and all as one, united. There should be a giving liturgy button right beneath that embedded YouTube video. Click on Sunday liturgy. And right there is our generosity prayer. This is the best response I could think of us doing. Milton, Kara uh, Hadian is going to lead us in communion in a few minutes after we sing a song. But right now, let's bring God into our, into our business, literally, our finances, and pray this. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you've not given me. Feel free to pray it out loud. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I'm determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Holy Spirit, would you come root those truths in our souls? Search our hearts during the song. Holy Spirit, come. Come.